0: Your positive positive imprint. Positive. Imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere.
1: People and their positive actions inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello listeners, this is Catherine, your host of Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring global conversations with people whose positive achievements are inspiring positive actions. Today, Lisa Highwood joins me to share with you her animal rehabilitation centers and her successful foundation to continue this important work in Africa. Tiki Highwood Foundation is successful not only in rehabilitation efforts, but also in educating the public through outreach programs. Lisa's phenomenal team is also active in getting government legislation passed for the protection of wildlife species. And Lisa, I am thrilled. I am so happy to have you here today on Your Positive Imprint. Welcome to the show.
0: Catherine, thank you very much. And thank you for reaching out and asking us to be a part of a podcast. We greatly appreciate it.
1: Oh, my goodness, your efforts are incredible, and I want to talk a little bit about you and the background. There's just so much to cover in the foundation that you have so heartily put together with such care. Let's talk about the positive imprints by Tiki, who is your dad and the namesake of your foundation,
0: and a little bit about yourself okay um well for starters i set up the tiki highwood foundation in memory of my late father in 1994. my dad was very much a pillar of the community uh here in zimbabwe and was very passionate about zimbabwe and going forward in a a progressive manner even though my father was predominantly a businessman he had great passion for the environment and obviously for wildlife of this country. And on his passing, I actually learned more about what he had actually done for this country than what I knew as, as a child. So it, it was a very um, special moment when I kind of took the plunge, if I can put it that way, and decided that in his memory, I wanted to carry on, I suppose, in a way, a bit of a legacy in, in his memory of the good work that he had done whilst he was uh, alive. And in his passing you know, what he could still achieve through through the collaboration of multiple groups and people. Well, it's amazing that
1: you have been able to have that vision. It was It's part of your own, obviously, upbringing and part of your own legacy. So how old were you when
0: you lost your dad? Um, I was 23. Well, I was mature. Well, well borderline mature. <laughs> 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 but um, I was actually overseas when I lost my dad. And so I came back to Zimbabwe. And I wanted um, kind of, I think my my initial thought was that I would set something up like a, a scholarship or just something in his memory. Because at his funeral, we, uh, instead of flowers, as a family, we asked for um, donations to go into conservation. And in 92, 93, Zimbabwe was experiencing possibly one of her worst droughts. Sadly, we're in another drought Uh, right now as we speak in Zimbabwe but at that time it was a very very dramatic drought and um, we decided that we wanted to to try and help wherever we could. Uh, So after his funeral I went down to the Lofalt and I kind of arrived wanting to see how I could facilitate some form of relief not knowing anything about what I was doing. You've got to understand this I was kind of fresh out of Paris and thought, well, what do I do? And everyone said, go south. And so I got in a vehicle, drove down to the low fault where there wasn't a blade of grass, no leaves on the trees, and the animals were just panting. It was, it was quite a, a dramatic contrast to what I was used to seeing and, and where I found myself. I, I bumped into a gentleman who had, had a very uh, severe face, and he said to me, what do you want? And I said, well, I, I want to help. And he kind of looked around and said, get in the car. And I kind of got in this vehicle, which certainly was far from a car that I was used to. It was just literally a seat and a steering wheel. And off we went for 25 minutes into nothing, into the moonscape. And then we stopped and he said, count. And I looked around and saw elephants like just weaving with their ears flapping. And I thought, oh, this is not a comfortable position. And um, I waited patiently in the vehicle and he came back and he said, how many? I said, 25. And he turned around and off we went. Uh, and then 10 minutes into the drive, I said to him, why are we counting elephants? And he said, because you're going to help to move them. And three and a half months later, uh, we moved 689 elephants. And that man that I bumped into was the legendary Clem Kutsi, who masterminded elephant translocation for, for the globe. For, you know, He was the first person that ever came up with the possibility of moving an elephant from A to B without shooting it. But during that time, during those three and a half months, what was amazing for me, Catherine, was realizing that if we have a common goal, a common purpose as mankind, we can move mountains. Uh, You know, those three months made me realize that we could actually move elephants. And we, even though we all came from different walks of life, we all had different opinions, we all wanted to help the elephants. We all wanted to make sure that we could save as many of those elephants as possible. And working together, we achieved a phenomenal feat, a phenomenal undertaking. I mean, when we first started, it took 25 people to move one elephant. By the time we had finished, we were so incredibly impressed with ourselves because it only took 15 people to uh, move elephant, uh, move one elephant. But during that time, what it showed me was that there are a lot of organization groups, etc., that only want to focus on charismatic animals for whatever their agenda or reasons are. And my father represented very much the underdog. Um, And so I thought, you know, going forward, I didn't want to necessarily represent the charismatic species. And, And remember, in Zimbabwe, elephants are not endangered. They're not even threatened. We actually have an overabundance of elephant. So I wanted to focus on species that were specially protected within Zimbabwe and where most people... You know, hardly ever heard of these species. At the time, and even to date, the, the, the rarest animal in Zimbabwe is actually an antelope called a Lichtenstein hartebeest So my quest as setting up the Tiki Highwood Foundation was to focus on those le- lesser known animals, and those animals which needed a voice and deserved a voice, and just because they were possibly slightly uglier or smaller than the next species um, that everybody wanted to save, it didn't mean that they didn't deserve as much of a right to be be saved. And so that started the ethos of the Tiki Howard Foundation.
1: That is such a marvelous story. That is incredible, Lisa. What, what a background to have started in your quest for conservation of wildlife and just the vision, literally the vision that you were seeing for the future and to look at, at the needs of what was taking place I have read so much about you. Where did you get your training, aside from that day when you sat in that one-seater with a little steering wheel? Where did you get your training and your understanding of rehabilitation as well as the veterinary care and also your government lobbying?
0: Well, it's a very good question. And I think um, one of the things that Clem actually said to me, because I said after the elephants, I said, jeez, I better go back to university and study. And he looked at me and, and he pointed in a circle around me and he said, what do you think this is? And I looked at him not understanding at all. And he said, this is the, the university of life. This is your classroom. You're going to m- learn more here than you're ever going to learn behind a book with somebody who's never been to Africa telling you what you should and shouldn't do. And and I thought, well, hey, I'm happy to go with that because, you know, school was not my forte. Um, and so I suppose life lessons, uh, stumbling, learning to pick myself up and you know, listening and, and taking as much in from others and learning from others. I think that's also a key thing is, is trying to take from others what they've learned and not make the same mistakes. Uh, but to be honest, I just stumbled across each um, experience and had to learn on the job. I suppose that w- that's what you could call it is on the job training. Um, you know, having worked now with pangolins, my first pangolin I received in October 1994. So, you know, 20 odd years later, my training is hands-on. Um, I'm I'm not a veterinarian. Um, I haven't been to any university or had any official training in the field that I've chosen to be in. Um, but I've had 24/7 hands-on experience,
1: and that that truly is a the university of life. And I think there's something to be said for the hands-on, especially when you're dealing with a rehabilitation center. Uh, and understanding the animals that are coming in and of course there's the outreach of of working with veterinarians who have the medicine and and so on but and I was a part of wildlife rescue and like you I never did take a class regarding the animals but we were taught you know how to by experience how to care for these animals and it's an incredible incredible experience because you're learning so much about another being. And I just commend you for continuing with that heartfelt need for conservation. Let's talk about the pangolin and explain this type of animal because a lot of people haven't heard about it.
0: Um, well, a pangolin is an antita, scaly anteeta. It is an animal that currently, sadly, is the most trafficked mammal on the planet. Um, in Africa, we have four species. Uh, and in Asia, we have four species. In CITES 2017, all eight species were uplisted from Appendix to to Appendix 1, which means that all trade in the species is illegal. What is the demand behind this animal? What is pushing the demand for this animal is um, a cultural belief in medicine uh, from the Asian um, communities that is, is driving the demand. Also, the fact that the pangolin now has the highest fetching meat on the market within China and Vietnam. And then in West and Central Africa, we have to bring in the bushmeat trade. So, in West and Central Africa, the pangolins are being eaten through the bushmeat because protein is, is a valuable source and something that's not readily available in West and Central Africa. Um, and now that you've got Chinese coming into Africa for, for trade reasons, obviously they are bringing their cultural background as well and creating further demand for pangolins within Africa. So this poor, secretive, mysterious, amazing, mystical, wise beyond belief animal is being plucked out of its natural environment, uh, tortured, uh, eaten, starved for something that has no scientific value or or relevance, um, that... snuffing uh, or eating a piece of um, pangolin or snuffing some scale of a pangolin can cure anything. It really, really, really is under threat. You've got multiple organizations around the globe now that have started putting a focus on the species, which is fantastic. Uh, And I think because of the uplisting, we've been able to get more funding to support initiatives within different countries, both in Africa and Asia. Uh, but this animal we're losing time like with multiple species. We are losing time and it's all for something that Really has doesn't have significance. You know when there's you can take a disparate and aspirin or you can have chemotherapy um, Does this animal need to be? M- become extinct because of what we think we might know that this animal can can help us with my, my answer is absolutely not uh, I think we should be respectful of other species that we share this planet with uh, The pangolin for me is nature's great gardener if we lose the pangolin species the, the ramifications from losing this animal Globally from from Asia through to Africa and the other different species that benefit from this animal and what it does to the Soil and eating of the ants and the termites. I think it, it is beyond anything that we can comprehend so we all really need to to, to take stock in what we're doing and we need to react, and we need to react very quickly. So I
1: have a question. If it has such a cultural significance, why wouldn't it be in Asia?
0: Well, the four species that are in Asia have almost been uh, poached to extinction. Oh, so a... they're going
1: beyond their borders.
0: Yeah. So now the demand – you, you know, that the biggest elephant in the room, if I can put it that way, is actually – human population, because in all these continents, you've got a massive increase of human numbers. And all these humans that are now running around, regardless of whether they're in Asia or Africa, they all need to find their space. They all are listening to cultural um, stories from grandparents. You know, we've just exploded at such a, a rate that I don't think... The wild species and the environment can actually handle the overpopulation or the, or the growth of, of human population that's taking place. So what's happened is in Asia, uh, China and Vietnam, those four species that occur in those countries have now been plundered to almost extinction. And so now with air routes opening with travel being so readily available to multiple sectors of of, um, uh, uh, You know of the communities you've got people traveling traveling the globe and those people that are traveling They're going to come to Africa uh, Because there's huge possibilities and and huge possibilities for trade so these people are all coming to Africa and they're bringing with them their their needs you know, whether it be a cultural need or a, a, a wanting to, to, you know, take a piece of home with them. You know, a lot of a lot of West African people are also moving to other parts of the globe. And one of the things that you know I said is bush meat is a big element to West African culture and diet. Um, and so what's happening is is illegal bush meat is being sent out of West and Central Africa to the demand countries, which is even as far as Canada.
1: For education purposes, when you do your outreach, in fact, let's talk about your education outreach. Do you take animals into schools, into neighborhoods, into the community? Absolutely not.
0: I don't agree with that at all. I think that to subject an animal that's been uh, saved or rescued through trade to now be subjected to a completely superficial and artificial environment with multitudes of people shouting and screaming and jumping around and not to mention passing on germs is just something that should not be done at all. So from where I come from, I do not ever uh, want to subject an animal to any extra stress. We, we as mankind have already subjected these species to, to untold stress. And the last thing I want to do is to now in, inflict more stress. I, I don't believe in ambassadorial animals. For me, the word ambassadorial animal equals commercialization. I think there are so many in this day and age, there are so many other avenues where we can create a better framework to educate people. We can, we can bring them in by... Um, Learning about this animal in their natural environment, and and what scares me even more, Catherine, by doing this, is we are allowing people to think that it's okay to have wild animals in cages, in zoos, etc. And I, honest to God, do not think that that is right. We need to see these species in the wild. You know, to see a polar bear behind a piece of glass playing in a swimming pool with a ball, is that what a polar bear should be doing? No, it's not. But to see a polar bear on a glacier or out in its natural environment, the, 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 the magical moment of being in that space. You can't put a value to that. You can't put words to that. And likewise for seeing the animals that come from Africa, these animals, they, they, they come from Africa for a reason, you know, to bring a polar bear into Africa because people want to see a polar bear. I think that's so selfish or to take a pangolin out of um, Africa or Asia and put it in America just because Tommy and Janie from the Bronx want to see a pangolin, I think that is the most selfish thing I've ever heard. With technology, with holograms, with everything that we have at our fingertips, we should be looking at different means to educate the population. I really
1: commend you also for that. And, and I agree because I'm a teacher. And what I see is that the moment is just for the moment. And what do you do to have an everlasting effect? How are you going to instill that value of conservation? Education outreach does need to go in a different direction so that the efforts are instilled and they remain. So, And I can see your point, absolutely, because like I say, when a a child, if they are seeing this animal, it may only affect them for that day. Mm, exactly and not instill that value of conservation for that animal for a lifetime you are a successful foundation and people are supporting you in many ways not just donations of money but also donations of motorbikes and they provide feedback they're there to support you so what are your education outreach opportunities and framework
0: um, so to answer your question I'd just like to uh, give you an example Um, Recently, we did a screening to university students about um, a pangolin film, which we were a part of. It's it's called The Eye of the Pangolin, and it's free to everybody to download from YouTube. And it's the first film that's ever been made documenting uh, the challenges faced with the four African species and the, the producer, uh, Bruce, Bruce Young, he traveled to multiple African countries to, on, on a quest to find out about the pangolin, not only to introduce the four species of African pangolin, but also to understand the challenges that are faced in the different regions of Africa. So, at the screening to the university students, a lot of the questions were, how can you get your message more into the communities? Can we set something up, Lisa, and can you come? And it was very interesting. Everybody in the audience, they wanted, they wanted to engage. They wanted to dialogue. But they wanted me to be the one that went to wherever. And, and I kind of stopped and said, guys, we need you to become the wildlife champions. These communities, they're your home communities. We need you to be instilled with a passion. I'm getting on. I'm old. You are young. You're the youth of today. You are the future for tomorrow. So you have to become aware of what this country is facing and what the continent is facing, and you have to become the messengers. And I do honestly believe that only through empowering others and working with authorities and multiple sectors within the community can we develop and instill what is required. Because, you know, often to bring a Western thought into a rural African community, that's not going to sit well. Um, you know, b- b- because we just think differently, and how I might respond to something in, in my space, in my community, is not the same way that somebody's going to respond in a, in a different setting. So I think we need to get buy-in from multiple sectors. A- and key for me has always been, you know, a lot of people will say to me, "Why did you get involved with legislation?" Well, it's very simple. I'm not going to live forever. But I wanted to know that Russ, I was here. Whatever my mission was, whatever my quest was, it will it will continue. And so for me, because we're running out of time, if you can change laws to get uh, laws within your country to include better protection, to include better enforcement, then that animal will have more of a chance of survival. Um, that That's my understanding. This is only my opinion. But I believe that it, that is one step to trying to create longevity. Oh. Uh-huh.
1: My gosh, absolutely. You're talking about legislation now, and and your efforts obviously have been a real stronghold in getting legislation passed, as well as working with the law enforcement, which you were talking a little bit about earlier, that you work with them. How do you go and get legislation passed?
0: Well, again, it's getting the buy-in, Catherine, from your authorities, okay? Um, Within all countries, you have a structure, and, and you have... A foundation, a legal foundation. So the first step is understanding your legal foundation. The second step is understanding the authorities that um, are role players within creating new legislation or, which is equally as important, adopting it. Because it's one thing to create a a legislative change or introduce a new law. It's another thing to get it adopted by the country. So it's understanding what Your country's rules and regulations are it's working with the authorities because the authorities are the ones that are actually going to enforce that at the end of the day They have the mandate to do that. And so you have to get the buy-in from your authorities. And and that's where Zimbabwe has been very proactive. We we've had a very good relationship with our authorities and, and I you know I look forward to continuing this relationship, understanding that Zimbabwe has been incredibly proactive when it comes to Pangolin conservation. And I think within Africa, Zimbabwe certainly is one of the most leading and forethinking countries regulating and understanding Pangolin conservation. So when an animal is injured, like a, a pangolin
1: or someone finds one, how does it work out there? Do you have a hotline where people call
0: you? Um, a- again, that's, it's very much in collaboration with our authorities. So if with pangolin, invariably, it's going to be um, a- an incident involving a criminal case. So once the pangolin has been confiscated by the poachers, the pangolin, um, obviously, the first port of call would be with the police officers. Then the police contact uh, Zimbabwe National Parks and Wildlife Management Authorities. And then from there, the the Zimbabwe um, National Parks will get hold of us. And put the pangolin into our care and that's when the rehabilitation process starts so that's the one side and then the other side Which is something that we're very proud of in Zimbabwe is we have what we call a handen So these are pangolins whereby the communities have adopted the understanding that these animals are rare endangered and threatened and so when they come across a pangolin that might be you know in a place where it shouldn't be ie in a field or in in a town or whatever the the people hand the pangolin over. So it's not a criminal case. They invariably contact the authorities, be it the police or national parks, and then that is a hand in pangolin. Um, and again, the authorities would equally contact us and ask us to rehabilitate that pangolin and then go through the process of rehabilitation and then uh, release once the pangolin's healthy enough to be returned to the wild.
1: That's, that's awesome. And what other animals do you work with on a rehabilitation basis and then get them back into the wild?
0: Well, we're a 24-7 rescue center. So within Zimbabwe, any animal that is orphaned or injured, uh, we obviously would, would uh, accept through our doors and, and rehabilitate. And obviously, our ethos is always to protect space for animals to return back into the wild. So, so we promote wild animals being in the wild. Obviously, there are circumstances where these animals cannot be returned for one reason or another, and so they, they will have to undergo lifetime care with us in our facilities. We, However, we're not open to the public. Uh, we do not take volunteers. Our animals, you know, the whole thing behind what we do with our animals is to give them the utmost of respect and to try and get them to have a, a, a very peaceful life, be it through the rehabilitation phase or be it through um, their lifetime care. These would need to be smaller animals, right? Um, Well, no, whatever comes through the (laughs) door is what we will. Yeah, you know, in in Zimbabwe, whatever animal would come through, uh, through the authorities, we would be happy to try and work with them. And we've done cheetah. We've rewilded cheetah from cubs. We've done quite an array of different animals. Obviously, the smaller animals we're probably more renowned for because those are the animals that a lot of people don't want much to do with or have been more focused, put it that way, been more focused on the larger, more charismatic animals.
1: You have your conservation approach, which is incredible, and you have a five-point conservation approach. Can you elaborate
0: on that? Uh, well, we, have, we, we try and instill the five points of freedom in captivity. Uh, which I think is, is very important that I think everybody needs to adopt whenever you've got animals in captivity. And and one of the things that we try and promote is space. A human species, we need to make sure that we allocate enough space for these wild habitats to remain. We are expanding at such a rate that we are encroaching all the time into these wild animal space. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Africa or in America or wherever you are. And and I don't know how we get that message across to the humankind about space. You know, a lot of people will say to me, Lisa, how can, how can we help? And for many years, I, I kind of struggled at that, that question because it was always, well, we need blankets or we need boxes or we need something like that. But actually now I've realized if any of you listening to this podcast want to help, you've got to look at yourself first. Each one of us have to become responsible for what we are doing. We need to look at the space that we are inhibiting. We need to say, what is our waste factor? How much are we using when it comes to plastic and non-biodegradable products? All these things we need to be aware and responsible for, and more importantly, we need to be accountable for. Um, You know, I once did an interview and Everybody was just so supportive and really wanting to help. And and they believed that they were like the best conservationists on the planet. Now, overpopulation is the single most threatening thing that faces the entire globe for multiple reasons. And I don't think we have enough time to go into that. And we need to be accountable for our own space. We need to be responsible for our own space. If we can't correct our own behavior, how can we think we're going to help a bigger picture? You have an amazing
1: quote which kind of encompasses everything that you just said and I pulled it from your website and if you don't mind that I actually am using something directly from there but you have on your website what have you done today do something amazing by helping change the lives of vulnerable animals that's pretty powerful especially starting out with what have you done today
0: yeah, you know, it, it's something because we we all can have an impact. Whether it's feed a wild bird, whether it's pick up a piece of paper on the on, on the pavement, we all have the power to make a change and make a change right now, today, this very minute. It the the question is, are you prepared to make that change? And I think
1: that that's a question that each of us needs to think about because that's part of my mission with this podcast is to help people identify their own positive imprints and to be inspired by people like you and to answer the question, what can I do? What am I doing? You know, what am I not doing? So this is all very incredible. And having people like you is is certainly not enough, Lisa. It's not enough. You cannot do it by yourself. (laughs)
0: Exactly. And and this is why these podcasts are incredibly important because you're reaching a sector of, of, of the communities that I would never be able to reach. Um, and, and equally, you know, what I think is also important is a lot of the time we feel that because there's so much bad going on, be it climate change, be it overpopulation, be it whatever, you, you kind of almost say, oh, there's so much despair. I don't know where to start. So you don't start. But I think one of the things I'd really like to to let everybody know is that you pick up one piece of litter, that is a start. That one piece of litter that you've picked up, that could have saved a life because if a, a, a cow or a donkey ate that piece of paper, that plastic, plastic bag or whatever it happened to be, that could in turn kill that donkey, kill that cow. So... Don't despair that, oh, well, I can't do a huge amount, so what's the point of doing anything? I think we need to, to realize that little steps ultimately allow us to travel a long journey. So start with the small stuff because the small stuff ultimately makes up the big stuff. But you've got to start. Uh, and that's my key thing is to everybody is you've got to start.
1: That's wonderful. And And are there any questions or anything that – we didn't cover that you really want to
0: say on the podcast. I'd like to be able to try and um, inspire the next generation to want to dream. I think with this massive self-gratification that humans have adopted with the, the, I mean, with these Android phones, you know, everything's very fast, very whizzy. And I don't really know whether the next generation has even had the liberty or or even knows how to dream. You know, for me, I want to see a fossa, but I want to see a fossa in its natural environment. That's my dream. And one day I will get to Madagascar and I will get to see a fossa, but I have to hurry up because otherwise I'm going to miss it. I dream about that moment and I want all five senses to be alive when I see my first fossa. And I don't want to see a fossa behind a cage in a zoo somewhere. I want to see a fossa in its natural environment. I want to see the magnificence of that animal in its own space. And I've dreamt about that since I was a little girl. I mean, obviously animals and wildlife are are something that are inherent in me and I've spent my life dreaming about it. But I would really want the children of today And the hope of tomorrow to start dreaming about wanting to see these animals and nature in the way that it was portrayed in how it should be, you know, seeing a lion in a cage or a camp, I don't know what you call them in different parts of the world. Is that really seeing the king of the jungle? I don't think so. I think we need to see these animals in their natural environment. So taking animals from the wild and putting them in, in captive environments because we think it's conservation, I think we need to reassess and readdress that concept. And yes, of course, everybody wants to see everything, I suppose, at the end of the day. But let's stop being so selfish. Let's stop you know, trying to catch that self-gratification bus so quickly. Let's maybe take a moment and say, you know what? there might be a point in that. Seeing an African lion, a majestic um, you know, male lion, leading its pride in the, the, the yellow grasses of Africa is certainly a whole lot better than seeing a, 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 the king of the jungle in a cage in a one-acre camp somewhere in Europe or America or wherever. And, and that's one of the things that I, I don't know whether I can get it across to anybody, Or how to but that's one of the things that I really think we need to start doing because when you see an animal in its natural environment it changes your life your life stops your life stands still for one moment and we as humankind I think we all we all strive to that that word freedom yet how many of us are actually free And why do we have the right to take the freedom away of all these other animals and put them into spaces that they don't belong? I really want to stress that we need to allow these animals to be free, to be wild, to be their namesake, and in the countries where they they belong.
1: Your words are inspirational and certainly global. And you have provided many different ways for people to get involved. And as you said, they have to start somewhere. Lisa Highwood, thank you for having the vision and turning it into a mission that has grown into this wonderful foundation, Tiki Highwood Foundation. Lisa Highwood, thank you.
0: Catherine, thank you very much, and, and thank you for your support and believing in the work that we do. Greatly appreciate it.
1: To learn more about Tiki Highwood Foundation, visit tikihighwoodfoundation.org. That's T-I-K-K-I-H-Y-W-O-O-D foundation.org. Well, December is a special time in cultures worldwide for celebrations. Please let me know how you celebrate December by contacting me. You can contact me through my website, yourpositiveimprint.com. Music by Chris Knoll. Well, Chris plays a multitude of piano genres, jazz, blues, instrumental, holiday. Check him out at chrisknoll.com. Well, next week's guest is from India, and he shares philosophy and ways to relax. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook, Your Positive Imprint, Twitter, What's Your PI, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Write positive reviews and hit those five stars. Check out my website at yourpositiveimprint.com. Sign up for email and receive updates on the podcast and guests. Follow or subscribe to this podcast now, Your Positive Imprint, What's Your PI.